We're responding to your questions today on communication, confidence, and control. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 587. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Several times a year, we take a episode and uh, stop for a bit and respond to the questions that have come in from you, our listening community. If you have a question you would like to submit to us for consideration for a future question answer episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way for you to get it to us. And I'm glad to be joined, as I almost always am on the question answer episodes, by my best friend in the world, Bonnie Stahoviak. Hello, Bonnie. Hey, Dave, two funny things. One is you sounded like you were saying you almost always enjoy me being here. (laughs) And second, I I know we don't often share behind the scenes moments in these podcasting adventures that we do, but I just got a new pair of progressive glasses. I mean, I've been wearing progressive glasses for a long time, but this is a new prescription. And I'm just glad we're not a video podcast today because literally the angle, I feel like I have to hold my head in order to both have my mouth close enough to the microphone so that you get the sufficient sound volume that you, Dave, need from me while also actually being able to read the words is an interesting challenge that makes me glad that this is an audio-only podcast. Uh, there are so many things that are easier with audio only, and uh, you and I have both been down this uh, journey in the recent years on progressive. Is it progress? Yeah, progressive yep. lenses. Uh, I just got mine a few weeks ago because I hit that magic age where all of a sudden you can't see things in front of you when you're reading, and whoa, that was quite a week. Yes, and they're amazing though. Don't please anyone listening. Oh, yeah. oh wow! I mean, the, I think back to changing my glasses thirty-seven thousand times a day, and please don't misunderstand us. High, high recommendation, but it just oh, takes yeah. a little while to get adjusted. And speaking of getting adjusted, we have some people who have questions that they would like some guidance on their own adjustments. How is that for a transition? It's friend? a beautiful transition to the first question from Margaret. Margaret writes in and says, I'm looking for some materials to use in an exercise with my team, a total of five of us on communication styles. We all have very different styles, and I would like to be able to do an activity with them that identifies their style and how the different styles impact their interactions with each other. I know I've been part of activities like this in the past, but I have no idea the source of the materials that were used. I could develop the materials if I had to, but something ready-made would be awesome. I'm not looking for anything overly complex, especially for this first round. Uh, Bonnie, I know you and your team have actually been doing a lot of this recently, so I'll let you start with this one. Well, specific to the question that you asked, we actually haven't been doing a lot about the communication styles, but but more strengths in general, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But one of the things that when I was getting certified to do the Myers-Briggs type indicator, literally one page from all of the materials that our facilitators gave us still stands out to me and makes me chuckle on such a regular basis. So a single page picture this, it is a Continuum, everything from very indirect communication on one side of this continuum all the way to very direct. And the example they used is an example of you go to the refrigerator, you open the door, and you realize that you're out of milk. 
And so on the very indirect side of this continuum, the person might say something like, we're out of milk to their partner. And on the very direct side of things, the person may say, go get us some milk. (laughs) And I just found the whole thing to be very hilarious at the time because I tend to be more of a direct communicator as my default setting. And that was the other thing that they really stressed is that all of us really as leaders, as people who want to influence other human beings, it can be very helpful when we can adapt to a given setting. So I know in certain settings, my natural default setting for direct communication is not going to be particularly helpful. So I'm self-aware of it to know that that is the case and then to know how to adapt my communication style to fit a given context. I think it is really helpful, though, to know about ourselves what our default setting might be. And to me, a communication around direct versus indirect communication could be a really healthy way. And one set of materials that I just think in general is great for Communication in general within teams are the Go team resources that Dave has talked about on prior episodes where he has had Susan Gerke speak about those resources. And I'll, Dave, you'll be able to put those in the show notes, I suspect. So that's just one quick exercise that I think people identifying what they notice about each other and what they notice about themselves and where they might notice themselves changing up their communication styles for a given context might be a healthy one. But Dave mentioned that I've been doing a lot of work with my team and more broadly, I think really healthy communication we've been having on my various teams are around the Clifton strengths. And there are lots of the Clif- Clifton Strengths, by the way, there are two different types of reports that you can glean from the organization. One would give you your top five strengths, but we have paid a little bit more money and gotten the report that lists all of the strengths from one all the way down to 34. And I will tell you, the conversations really get fascinating when you look at not just what the top five are, but the top 10, because really those are ones you can flex to pretty easily. But also the conversations around the bottom five have been both hysterical, but also really good, healthy, raw communication. Because of that, I mean, by the way, they don't say it's your weakness, but that is what it is. It's not a strength that you're going to benefit a lot trying to draw from rather than trying to draw that out in other people who can complement your existing strengths. And so those have been really good conversations. A woman we've been working with on the Clifton Strengths has identified the difference between a raw strength or talent, they call it, or a refined strength. So sometimes, I and the expression I have used a lot is when the volume of our strengths gets turned up too loudly in certain contexts, how uh, even our things that we're the best at can become not particularly helpful to us. And so just having that language for us has been really healthy and helpful to be able to name things that are happening, name dynamics that we see are occurring, but really has introduced a language across the entire team, not just those that are particularly interested in instruments like this. And it's really been an absolute blast getting to have those conversations and thinking more about how to use the best of the strengths that each of us bring to the team. 
Those were the first two resources I thought of as well, Bonnie. So a second recommendation for Go Team resources, past guest Susan Gerke, who's been on many times, as well as David Hutchins, who does the work on storytelling we've had featured many times on the show. Uh, they both authored Go Team resources, and the best way I can describe it is it is a ready. It is exactly what you're asking for, Margaret. It is a ready-made set of materials that is geared for leaders, facilitators, managers to be able to pick up and to be able to walk through with their team in a very simple and straightforward way. And we've had many folks in our listening community over the years, many of our members who have purchased them. By the way, they're very inexpensive. They've purchased the materials. They're just a couple hundred dollars US and then utilized it with their team. So we'll put a link in the episode notes for that uh, and also this week's weekly leadership guide. I think it's goteamresources.com. Com, but I'm um, I'll put the correct link in the in the guide, and then certainly a ditto on StrengthsFinder. We've had Lisa Cummings on the show many times over the years, so I'll mention her at the end in some of the one at least one of the past episodes we've done on StrengthsFinder. And the thing that I think that is really wonderful about StrengthsFinder, in addition to what Bonnie mentioned, is that one, it's very inexpensive, but also it is very accessible in the language. Because it doesn't, it's not a right or wrong. It's just what are your, uh, what are your top talents, and everyone has a list. Everyone's is unique, but it also gives you the language. I think the most powerful thing about StrengthsFinder is it gives you everyday language to be able to talk about what comes naturally to you and what doesn't, and to recognize that in others in the organization. And I think that kind of language is what leads to then. The raw conversations that Bonnie mentioned of being able to get to the heart of things that you might get to as a team in 12 or 18 months without it. But StrengthsFinder has a wonderful way of being able to surface that more quickly and to be able to have an apparent and uh, and very focused conversation about the communication style differences and also many other differences as well, too. I would, in addition, add a book by Sarah Stein Greenberg, which I know Bonnie's actually gotten into as well, called Cur Creative Acts for Curious People. We featured her on the show a few months ago, and Sarah's out at uh, the design school at Stanford. And this book, we didn't talk about this very much in the episode, but the book is built around a whole series of exercises for teams. Some of them are related to creativity. Some of them are related to communication. Some of them are related to conflict and tons of other areas. It's one of the best books I've seen just with a comprehensive set of resources, activities for team. Again, the kind of thing that you can pick up and you will absolutely find a exercise or two or three that may be appropriate for the next staff meeting or offsite or whatever event you're doing where you're starting to surface a conversation like this. So I think that in addition to listening to that episode, I think that book would be a wonderful starting point to be able to begin to start focusing on the communication styles you're asking about. So I hope that's helpful to you, Margaret. Let us know what you decide to do, and we'll have links to all of that here in the episode notes as well. So that takes us to our next question from Jeff. Jeff left this audio question for us. Hi, Dave. This is Jeff from Maryland. I've been a new leader in my company, took on a leadership commitment there about nine months ago. I've really been enjoying listening to your podcast over the last few months. And one of the associates on my team that I lead, uh, I've identified as someone that could use some help by being more confident. And I was wondering if you had any tips as to how to help someone with a confidence issue or to help someone improve in terms of confidence. 
again, I really enjoyed listening to your podcast and uh, thank you very much. Thanks so much for your question, Jeff. There are two things I want to start out just chatting about before I address your specific question, and that is that you didn't mention any specifics about this in- individual, but the first two things that popped to into my head when I read it are, are there any gender or cultural differences that this individual may possess that are different from your own identity, Jeff, because there's a lot of research, for example, I'm more familiar with research around women and how if women show up with the same level and types of confidence that some men do, that would seem like a good thing. Like, look, we can learn from the confidence that some men possess. And then if we had that in our lives and in actuality, if we try to copy other people's approaches, a lot of the research, by the way, comes out of around negotiating And it isn't always going to work if we just try to copy someone else's approach and style if it doesn't fit our own both comfort levels, but also others' perceptions of us based often on gender and cultural differences. So that was the first thing that came to my mind, because you wouldn't want to just assume that what has worked for you and your career around confidence levels is necessarily always going to translate well to others. That being said, Jeff, I'm definitely on board (laughs) with um, the ways in which just confidence in general, since I don't have a lot of specifics, I had lots of thoughts about this, lots of questions for you. I wish I got a chance to ask you, but definitely I think that if we're exhibiting terribly low confidence, that being able to change that could actually really transform not just someone's career, but actually their life in a lot of ways. So please don't misunderstand me. I don't know this situation, but in general, all of us with appropriate levels of confidence matched to what it is that we're trying to accomplish is oftentimes going to turn out to be a good thing. When it comes to confidence, one of the things I have found helpful is to think about behaviors. Is it possible, for example, to behave our way into exhibiting greater confidence or perhaps even actually having greater confidence? So there would be examples where I will try often not to overly apologize for things. This came up a lot. The first 10 years of my career was in the computer training industry, and so it would come up where something's not working with the technology. So do we really need to apologize five, six, seven times over and over again while we're attempting to troubleshoot whatever the problem is? Or could we, instead of having a lot of focus on the apology, just give ourselves a moment, allow for some silence to take those deep breaths and try to figure out what on earth is going on here, fix whatever the issue is, or perhaps even just adjust things a little bit to redirect people's attention to something else that will be a productive use of everyone's time versus having to hear a lot of apologies. So sometimes the behaving our way toward seeming like a more confident person, I might by my very nature want to apologize for something, but I have sort of trained myself over time. You know what? Another thing that's come up a lot with a number of times that we're all having meetings or perhaps giving presentations via web conference. This is kind of a funny one, but there's a joke, a a meme that's gone around a lot that if I don't, if a tree falls in the forest and I don't announce in advance that I'm sharing my screen on Zoom, can anyone actually see it? (laughs) So the idea, the idea I've tried to like, you know, maybe don't tell someone every single time that you're going to share your screen. Maybe 
just do it. And, and I realize for some people, since in that particular example I just gave, it oftentimes will take over people's screens and if they're not used to that. But I really think most of the time we're just in this habit of talking about stuff that doesn't really matter to fill the space when sometimes silence would be a breath of fresh air and we don't have to announce whatever technical issues we are or not having quite as verbosely as we might otherwise. One last little bit of advice I would like to share in addition to considering whether or not there are gender or cultural differences and considering whether or not we might have small ways we can behave our ways into seeming or perhaps even being more confident has to do with language. One bit of language that I really like is the word becoming. Rather than saying, I'm not good at whatever it is. I'm not a good writer. I'm not good with technology. I'm not a good teacher. I'm not a good presenter. Rather than saying those things, it may be an area where you really have identified weaknesses for yourself or, or you have an aim to try to grow your skills in a particular area. A more confident way of expressing a deficiency would be, I am working on becoming better at presenting. I am working on becoming more effective as a teacher. I am working on becoming more adept at using technology in this context. And what I love about that is I actually think as a leader, having an orientation toward always working on becoming better at the things that are most essential to me is really good language to have. So even if I think I may be pretty adept at something, for me personally, if that's a big part of my job, my role, I'm always sort of fascinated about what's that next level? What's the next thing? How can I continue to grow these existing strengths that I have such that I could become even more effective. So I think as a leader, what a helpful set of language to introduce to people if we're all working on becoming. It's so funny you brought up that language around becoming, Bonnie, because I don't think you know this, but the 90-day commitments we do in the academy, we frame them around taking on a new identity. And the language is, who am I becoming? Because it is a process, as you just mentioned. And what's interesting is that every time we put together the commitments about, okay, what am I going to do over the next 90 days to improve my skill or confidence in a particular area, the biggest place where I find myself jumping in and intervening from a coach and facilitation standpoint is trying to get our members to do less because they set the bar so high for themselves that they might get traction for a few days, but they're so quick to want to jump in and say, hey, I'm going to spend 30, 45 minutes a day working on this. And the reality is, for most of us, is we just don't have that kind of time and bandwidth and also that level of energy to keep that 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 kind of achievement sustainable for a long period of time where it develops into a habit. And so the invitation I'm making just about every day is to get our academy members to take on less to actually get it down to being something much more simple, to be able to clear the bar easy in five minutes a day or less is kind of our mantra around that. And I think that actually relates back to this question in a big way too, because when I think about confidence, it's about how can we have wins? How can we have wins for ourselves where we actually have a sense of accomplishment? And 
two things that I've seen work really well for this over the years. One of them comes from when I was a Carnegie instructor. Many of you know Dale Carnegie has been known for years as an organization of teaching people how to communicate more effectively, and particularly public speaking has been a big focus of Carnegie's work and helping people to develop confidence speaking in front of groups. And Carnegie was really brilliant on how he put together the framework for this in the programs, is when folks would come to a course where they were learning on speaking, he would have people get up the very first day and just say their name in front of the group and then sit down. And that was it. And then the next time they'd come back to the class, the next day or the next week, they would come up and they would share a sentence about something. And then they'd sit down. And it was very, and for some people that was easy. For some people that was terrifying. And a lot of people fell somewhere in between where it was like, okay, I can, I can say my name. I can then say a sentence. And we would set the bar very, very low, but we would consistently begin to move the bar up as people became more comfortable with being able to have those achievements. And it's really, really powerful to be able to have success and to feel that psychological success and being able to accomplish something. And so, Jeff, one of the things that you may consider with this employee and being conscious of everything Bonnie said, that there's perhaps gender, cultural, racial components of this, depending on who this person is, is how do you help this person to experience success? If it is truly a confidence area, what are the things that you can set up that will help to set expectations with them of what's the success metric today on this project, uh, on this micro moment or this particular skill area that will help them to get traction and to feel better about getting movement forward? And I have found this to be true for myself. One of the things that I do as a practice almost every working day is my friend Scott Barlow, who's the host of the Happen to Your Career podcast. He's been on a few times before. Scott and I have a call every morning, about five minutes. It's very short. And we set for each other, what are the two or three things we're working on today, the bars we're trying to clear? And we have discovered over the years we've been doing it now that whenever either of us sets either more than three things or makes the things too big, the other person will jump in and say, really? (laughs) Are you sure you're going to try to do five or six things today? Or you really think you can do that based on like what I know about you and kind of your general schedule and energy level? And almost every time, if we try to do more than three or if we take on things that are too big, we end up having failure at the end of the day. And there's something to be said about at the very beginning of the day, just setting what's the success metric of making it achievable. And at the end of the day, being able to check two or three of those boxes, which is where we get most days. And even if I didn't achieve anything more than I would have if I didn't do that, by identifying in advance what success looks like and what are the bars I want to clear, it helps us both to make traction because we feel a sense of success and accomplishment. So Jeff, I think the one of the biggest things you can look for here is where can you help this person to experience success? What are the small initial steps on whatever you're working on with them that will help them to experience success of look for opportunities to, to have them participate in, to have them interact with clients or peers or whatever the situation is, where they're likely to experience some early success. 
and they're likely to get some early wins. And then you build from there. And then I would be remiss if I didn't follow up on what Bonnie said on thinking about some of the the possible gender components here too. One episode I'd also invite uh, everyone thinking about this to listen to is episode 556, End Imposter Syndrome in Your Organization. This is a very closely related topic. We tend to sometimes identify people as having imposter syndrome, of having low confidence in whatever they're doing. Women and women of color and minorities tend to hear this a lot more from managers inside organizations. And one of the things that I appreciate that Jody Ann Beery reminded us of in that conversation is there are a lot of organizational components to this too. We tend to put that label on other folks and expect them to do the work, and we miss the opportunity that we have as managers, as leaders in organizations, to think about what do we need to do, what's the work we need to do to actually help people to find more success in the work they're doing, and where may some of the unintended obstacles be there. So that's also a place that I think would be really, really useful as a starting point just to look at the broader picture here on confidence to help you and others support that in the organization. All right. So our final question comes from Christopher. Christopher writes, I thought episode 575 with Richard Ryerson was a compelling and helpful conversation. And I wanted to suggest you follow it up with another episode on the following topic. What to do if you've rationally and appropriately challenged authority? You have figuratively pointed to the warning indicator that is unmistakably flashing, and you don't have the authority to figuratively take over the aircraft as a leader or manager. When is it okay to come to peace that if you've done everything in your power to advise on a situation, to accept that you don't have control over it and to let it go? Christopher, thank you so much for asking this question. Uh, a number of other folks reached out to me and mentioned that this conversation was helpful to them. Uh, for those who didn't listen, this was a conversation with Richard about his work as a pilot and how do they navigate power dynamics in the cockpit when something isn't working. If the co-pilot, the person with typically less authority in the cockpit, notices something that the pilot's doing that's unsafe, what's the progression of steps? And aviation has defined this really well. And I think there's a lot of lessons for us as leaders on this. One thing I would uh, say about this in the context of your question, Christopher, is that most of the time, it isn't unmistakable. Uh, this is where the analogy perhaps breaks down from the cockpit to what we deal with in leadership every day, is that there are certainly situations where it is absolutely clear, for example, when the landing gear isn't put down and the plane is on final approach, or it's absolutely clear that that is a problem that needs to be addressed and where the co-pilot eventually just takes control of the aircraft if the pilot has not done that. That's not most situations most of us deal with each day. And the reason it's not most is it's very rare that, rarely the case where it's a life, life safety situation or it is absolutely unmistakably clear that the manager, leader, person in power, insert, insert uh, word here, is wrong. More of the time, it's a judgment call. It's, I really think this is the way the organization should go or the team should go, and the person in power disagrees with that, or your peers disagree with that, or the client disagrees with that. And that becomes a awkward situation. And to answer your question directly, Christopher, is there are times that I think that if, assuming it's not a life safety situation, where you have to assess, okay, how important is this to me? 
And all of us have situations that happen to us in our careers where we feel really strongly about something, the organization or the person in power has decided to go a different direction, and we need to make peace with that. And I think the times that we decide that we can't make peace with that is when lives are on the line or ethics or morals or values are on the line that we cannot go along with. For me, and I'm only speaking for myself here, when I look back on my career, there have been very, very few situations where something like that has truly been the case. More often, it has been I have had very strong emotions about something, and I have listened to those emotions more clearly sometimes and have allowed them to crowd my judgment. So let me explain with an example. Uh, years ago, at when I was at Carnegie, my boss and I had a bit of an ongoing dispute about a way that we were running one of our programs. Uh, and by the way, we both had a great relationship. We regularly talked about things we disagreed on. Uh, but on this particular thing, uh, it was a very respectful ongoing debate, but we were both in a very different place. And we had talked through it for a month or two, and ultimately a decision needed to be made. And he was very kind about it. Actually, looking back, he was probably too kind about it. But eventually he said, hey, we're going to go this direction. We're going to at least pilot it and try it out. And let me try this for three or four months and kind of see how it goes. And I really felt strongly that he was wrong that it was going to be less of an experience for the clients we worked with, that it was going to generate issues in our cor in our coursework and in our classrooms, and that people weren't going to get the same results that they would get. And I felt really, really strongly about it, and so did several other people in the organization. But uh, our boss said, hey, we're, we're, we're going to do this. So we did. And we got six months into piloting it the new way, and it became apparent that I was completely wrong, that... Not only was there no effect, there were actually some upsides from doing it this new way. And if you had asked me before all of that happened, if that would be the case, I would never have predicted that. But the, one of the reasons that I wasn't able to is because my emotions got in the way. And I think that sometimes we, we mistake our strong emotions for certainty. And I love the invitation from Susan David, who mentioned on the show a while ago that Emotions are data, not direction. And I think that it's really incumbent upon all of us is that when we feel strongly about something is to say that, to back that up with evidence, to make sure the organization knows that. I think we owe it to our organizations and to all of our stakeholders that when we truly believe that the organization's heading in the wrong direction, to say that. And in a life safety situation, like in an airplane, like in a medical procedure, to sometimes intervene and take over, right? If we know for, with certainty that something's going wrong. But at the very least, in most of the other situations, is to express that opinion, to back it up with evidence, to use examples, and to do that with the intention of, I am arguing this case because I truly believe that the organization's going down a wrong direction to serve people well. And also, at the same time, to be able to go outside of yourself and to recognize that I could be wrong, that my emotions could be getting in the way, and I may be wrong on this. And so, Christopher, I think that that's the place I'd start, is are you able to live with the ethics, the morals, the, the situation at hand? If you're not, then maybe that's the time you decide you can no longer be associated with that organization. But again, I think those times are few and far between. On the other times, 
Have you said what you needed to say? Are you willing to live with it? And where might you be wrong? And I think if you go through that exercise for yourself, I think that helps you to get to a place where you can move forward and continue to do the important work. Dave really identified such an important distinguish to be making in our minds, wanting to think about, do I have a fiduciary responsibility? Is my is a part of my job a responsibility for if it's a publicly traded organization, then you actually have to sign off on the financials. To the best of my knowledge, these are accurate financials. Is there anything Dave mentioned ethically? Am I ethically bound to report whatever this is to beyond whatever the person I'm trying to influence here is? And if the answer is no, I have found very much resonating with what Dave said. Have I said what I needed to say? And especially depending on the person, have I provided sufficient levels of evidence to attempt to separate or support, I suppose, support what I'm trying to say, but separate it from it being about me and my preferences to no, look at this thing. The engine light is clearly indicating or the indicator light, like you said, Christopher, is clearly on on this one. And then from there, I do just find it very freeing to have a fairly healthy level of detachment. And when I was using that word detachment, it actually, it's come up in my own mind, but it came up in a book that I had read about dignity by Donna Hicks as a very helpful way of really protecting ourselves and allowing ourselves actually to have greater influence because we don't have our emotions so wrapped around it. Part of that emotion thing is our pride trying to protect our pride and and trying to look at things as if there are right answers and wrong answers when in the vast majority of cases, as Dave said, there are multiple avenues that could be taken. And you've said your piece. And so the person's decided to go a different way. And then I just find it helpful for me then to focus my energy to focus my strengths on places where I actually can make a difference. And in a recent session, actually, I think it might have even ironically, Dave, been a podcast interview I was conducting. This is getting very meta here. (laughs) But when I used that word detachment, someone told me they thought what I was really describing was actually boundaries, you know, setting up good boundaries for oneself. And I've really liked that word better for this kind of feeling that I've often found, especially during the pandemic and some of the things that so many of us have found ourselves in, you know, we said our piece, you know, the direction we think things should go. And then people choose to go a different direction, having good boundaries then around that. I want to mention one other book I just finished reading. It's called Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds by Adrian Marie Brown. And one of the many, many good things that came out of this book about change is the phrase, small is all. And it's this whole idea that it can seem like what we are doing is making absolutely no difference in the world. But what it's all about is kind of working in solidarity with other people and doing the small things that together add up to be absolutely transformational. So I would just encourage you that way, Christopher, that if you can express yourself as Dave has suggested, Try to make your case, provide the evidence, and it doesn't go your way. Take that redirected energy then. What are the small things that you could do that are in alignment with your values and how you think things should be done? And focus those seemingly little efforts 
that can add up to create magnificent change in other people's lives and throughout the organization. So thanks so much for your message and for posing such an important question. Bonnie and I mentioned a number of resources in this conversation. I've linked them all up in the episode notes. They'll also be in this week's weekly leadership guide. And if the questions here got you thinking about what you may do next, several related episodes that will dive even further into some of the details. One of them I'd recommend is episode 293, How Teams Use StrengthsFinder Results. Lisa Cummings was my guest on that episode. She's a friend and really the top expert I know on StrengthsFinder. She has for many, many years been running an organization that entirely focuses on helping teams to utilize StrengthsFinder well inside organizations and has facilitated thousands and thousands of hours over the years. She's also the host of the Lead Through Strengths podcast. In episode 293, Lisa and I talk through if you are a manager of a team and you decide to utilize StrengthsFinder, what do you do next? How do you actually do that? Uh, what kind of conversations and exercises would you have uh, afterwards? Of course, one option is to bring in someone like Lisa, but there's a lot of things you can begin with on your own as starting points. Episode 293 walks you through step-by-step exactly how to get started with a tool like StrengthsFinder. Also recommended is episode 377, How to Lead an Offsite with Tom Henschel. Margaret asked us about more resources on team communication styles. We looked at that from a bigger picture lens in episode 377. If you're running an offsite, an all-day meeting with your team, maybe it's uh, maybe it's virtual, maybe it is in person now. But regardless of where it is and the purpose of that event, many organizations regularly have events like offsites in order to come together as a team and to achieve some objective. Tom and I talked in detail about uh, how to actually go about that process, how to think about purpose, what are some of the tools and resources he uses as a talented facilitator, in addition to being a coach, of coming in and doing offsites for teams and some of the best practices for that, episode 377. Also recommended, episode 556, End Imposter Syndrome in Your Organization. Jody Ann Beery was my guest on that episode. Jeff asked us about confidence, and whenever I think about confidence, Confidence, I always think back to this episode about imposter syndrome. Oftentimes we use that label, but we don't think about some of the broader implications of it. Episode 556 is a good listen. If you find that imposter syndrome or lack of confidence is showing up for someone in your organization or you're identifying that, I think that would be a very helpful starting point. Also, episode 569, The Way to Make Struggles More Productive with Sarah Stein Greenberg. She is the author of the excellent book, Creative Acts for Curious People. Tons of great resources and exercises in there for teams. We talked about one aspect of it on episode 569. And then finally, the question that Christopher asked was inspired by episode 575, Make It Easier to Challenge Authority. Richard Ryerson was my guest on that episode. He's the first officer on a Boeing 777, and he talked through in that conversation, how does challenging authority work in the cockpit when pilots run into that? Many implications for the rest of us as leaders on how we might utilize some of those same skills and expectations in framing conversation around power dynamics in our organizations. 
all of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to take a moment now to set up your free membership if you haven't before. There's a ton of resources inside free membership. It'll give you access to a whole bunch that you can utilize between episodes and to utilize in the archive of all the episodes we've aired since 2011. And one of the many resources is a series of free courses that are on the website and available for you. We mentioned the work of Susan Gerke earlier in this conversation and the Go Teams resources module. We interviewed Susan a while back for about an hour and did a Q&A with some of the members in our community on how to create team guidelines. We've had an episode on that in the past with her too, but we did a video interview with her as well. That is one of the free courses inside of free membership. When you set up your free membership, just go ahead and click on courses inside of the panel. You will see that course on creating team guidelines, plus several others that will get you started on going deeper on some specific areas that will help you to get traction in your own leadership development. All of that you can find inside the free membership, coachingforleaders.com in order to get there. And I look forward to seeing you back for our next episode. Have a great day.